Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Well, good morning. Thank you so much for joining with the Sangha today to take part in this. I have not prepared a talk, but what I have is a reading that I want to share. And I want to thank Brian Basic, uh, whom I met with on Friday, who reminded me of this text. It's from an early book by Joko Beck called Nothing Special. And it's called, what's it called? Something like Six Stages of Enlightenment. Let's see. Uh, the six stages of practice. And uh, what I would like is to be able to, um, let's see, I want to switch. I want to be able to see who's got their hand raised. What I would like to do is uh, read the first paragraph. This is something that we often do with readings at Apamata. Uh, and then to uh, pass off the next paragraph to another person to read. So actually, uh, our, our monitor, our host now is, Nancy, are you the monitor host? Okay. Um, so let me ask if everyone who is willing to read or has the capability to read, first of all, I'm going to put the, I'm going to screen share to show what it is that I want to be able to, to have read. Um, is that, is that legible to everyone? I hope so. Okay, several people are nodding and of course I'm limited in what I can see. So uh, what I would like to ask is if you are willing to read, would you raise your hand? That is, go into the bottom of the Zoom screen and use the um, function which allows you to raise your hand. Yeah, I see Claudine has done that, Brian, Joan, Nancy. Maria, Rosemary, Becky, Bob. Very good. All right, and if you if you um, decide later that you want to read, go ahead and raise your hand and I'll I'll try and keep track of who has read and not. But what we'll do is, I think, just go through in uh, alphabetical order as we appear in the, the list of uh, people who are uh, participating. Um, okay, and that does not show up in alphabetical order for me. Why is that? So, okay. So, uh, Nancy, if you can call on people in alphabetical order by how their names appear in the participant list. I cannot access that while I have the, the um, screen sharing on, so I would mess it up. So I'll go first, and then Nancy, if you would call the next person in order after that. And, okay. And call 
each person and, and unmute each person when it's their turn to read. Okay. Okay. Yeah. This is a lot for me to, to uh, dump on Nancy with no warning. So thank you so much for what you're doing, Nancy. You're welcome. So again, this is from a book called uh, Nothing Special uh, by Joko Beck, who was Peck's teacher and was who became close to Flint late in her life as well. And uh, has had, an, although she didn't have a big center in San Diego and then later in uh, Arizona, she has had an enormous influence uh, throughout uh, Zen in the United States. And some of her students have become very, very important as practitioners and as teachers. So this was written, uh, well, actually it's from a talk that she gave probably 30 years ago. So it's called the six stages of practice. The path of practice is clear and simple. When we don't understand it, however, it can seem confusing and pointless. It's a bit like learning to play the piano. Aside, Joko was a skilled classical pianist. It's a bit like learning to play the piano. Early in my piano training, a teacher told me that to become a better pianist, I should practice the sequence of C, E, G over and again, 5,000 times. I wasn't given any reason. I was just told to do it. Becky. I was a good girl when I was young. I probably did this without understanding why it was necessary. But we're not all good girls and boys. So I want to pre present the why of practice by going through the steps of the path we have to take. Why all the tedious, repetitive work is necessary. All of my talks are about aspects of this path. This is an overview. To put things into that perspective is an orderly way. Uh, Brian, please. Um, okay, most persons who have not engaged in any sort of a practice, many people are practicing in their own way, whether or not they are students of Zen, are in what I call the pre-path. That was, to the next page. Okay. There. That was certainly true of me before I began to practice. To be in the pre-path means to be wholly caught up in our emotional reactions to life in the view that life is happening to us. We feel out of control, stuck in what seems a bewildering mess. There, this may often be true for those who practice as well. Most of us revert at times into this painful confusion. The ox herding pictures illustrate this point. We may work through the later stages and then under stress, we'll jump back to an earlier stage. Sometimes we jump way back to the pre-path where we're totally caught in our reactions. This reversion is neither good nor bad, just something that we do. Claudine. To be caught wholly in the pre-path, however, is to have no inkling that there is another way to see life. We step onto the path of practice when we begin to recognize our emotional reactions, for example, that we are getting angry and beginning 
to create chaos. We begin to discover how much fear we have or how often we have mean or jealous thoughts. Yes, John. Uh, the first stage of practice is this process of becoming aware of our feelings and internal reactions. Labeling our thoughts helps us to do this. It's important to be consistent, however. Otherwise, we will miss much of what, is, what goes on in our thoughts and feelings. We need to observe it all. The first six months or year of practice can be quite painful because we begin to see ourselves more clearly and recognize what we're really doing. We label thoughts such as, I wish he would just disappear, or I can't stand the way she fixes her pillows. In an intensive retreat, such thoughts are likely to multiply as we become tired and irritable. In the first six months to a year, opening up to ourselves can be a major shock. Though this is the first stage of practice, elements of it continue into 10 or 15 years of practice as we continue to see more and more of ourselves. Maria? In the second stage, we typically, which typically begins from two to five years into practice, we are beginning to break down the emotional states into their physical and mental components. As we continue to label, and as we begin to know what it means to experience ourselves, our bodies, and what we call the external world, the emotional states slowly begin to break down. They never entirely disappear. At any point, we can, and often do, dive right back to the previous stage. Still, we're beginning the next stage. The demarcation between stages is never precise. Of course, each flows into the next. It's a matter of emphasis. Stage one is, the, is beginning to recognize what's going on and the harm it does. In stage two, we motivate it to break down the emotional reactions. In stage three, we begin to encounter some moments of pure experience experiencing without self-centered thought, just pure experience itself. In some Zen centers, such states are sometimes called enlightenment experiences. Rosemary? In stage four, we slowly move more consistently into a non-dual state of living, where the basis is experiential instead of being dominated by false thinking. It's important to remember that there are years and years of practice involved in all of these stages. Vivian. My. Okay, great. In stage five, 80 to 90% of one's life is lived from an, an experiential basis. Life is quite different than it used to be. We can say that such a life is one of no self because the little self the emotional stuff that we've been seeing through and breaking down is largely gone. Pre-path living, being caught in everything and stuck in one's emotional reactions is now impossible. Even if one wanted to revert from stage five to a pre-path stage, one couldn't do it. 
In stage five, compassion and appreciation for life and for other people are much stronger. At stage five, it's possible to be a teacher, helping others along the path. Those who have reached stage five are probably already teachers in one way or another. Sentences such as, I am nothing and therefore I am everything are no longer meaning, meaningless phrases in some book, but things one knows intuitively. Such knowledge is neither special or strange. So it's back to you, uh, Joe. Okay. Yeah. Theoretically, there is a sixth stage, that of Buddhahood where purely experiential living is 100%. I don't know about that, and I doubt that anybody fully achieves this stage. Thank you. By far the most difficult jump to make is from stage one to stage two. We must first become aware of our emotional reactions and our body tension how we carry on about everything in our lives, even if we conceal our reactions. We have to move into clear awareness through labeling our thoughts and beginning to feel the tension in the body. We resist doing this work because it begins to tear apart who we think we are. At this stage, it helps to be aware of our basic temperament our strategy for coping with pressure in our lives. Therapy can also be useful at this stage if, it, it's, if it's intelligent therapy. Good therapy helps us to increase our awareness. Unfortunately, truly good therapists are somewhat rare. Much of therapy is not intelligent and even encourages blaming others. Well, you can try again. On this battleground of struggle from stage one to stage two, we begin to realize that we have a choice. What is that choice? One is to refuse to practice. I am not going to label these thoughts. It's boring. I'm going to just sit here and dream about something pleasant. The choice is to stay stuck and continue to suffer, which unfortunately means that we will make others yeah. suffer also, or to find the courage to change. Where do we get the courage? The courage increases as our practice continues and we begin to be aware of our own suffering. And if we're really persistent, the suffering we're causing other people. Mm -hmm. We begin to see that if we refuse to do battle here, we do harm to life. We have to make a choice between living a dramatic but self-centered life and a life that is based upon practice. To move with any degree of solidity from stage one to stage two means that our drama slowly has to come to an end. From the standpoint of the little self, that it's a tremendous sacrifice. Brian. When we struggle between stages one and two, we make emotional judgments. He really makes me angry. I feel rejected. I feel hurt. 
I feel annoyed and resentful. I feel vengeful. Such sentences come shooting out of our emotions. It's all very juicy and even seductive. We get a first-rate drama going about our victimization in life, what's happened to us, how bad it all is. Despite our misery, we really love being the center of it all. I feel depressed. I feel bored. I feel irritable. I feel excited. This is our personal drama. We all have our versions of a personal drama, and it takes years of practice before we're willing to we're willing seriously to consider moving away from them. People move at different speeds because of differences in background and strength and in determination. Still, if we're persistent, we will begin to shift from stage one to stage two. Claudine. Yes. As we move increasingly into the second stage, there begin to be more and more periods when we find ourselves saying, oh, it's okay, I don't know why I thought that was such a problem. We find that we see everything with increasing compassion. Mm. That process is never complete or final. At any point, we can dive back into stage one. Still, on the whole, our appreciation increases, and we find that we can enjoy people whom formerly we couldn't stand. In a good practice, there is almost inexorable movement, but we must be willing to spend as long as it takes to, at each step. The process cannot be rushed. John. Insist upon the emotional judgments I mentioned above, and there are endless variations we can be sure we haven't moved firmly into stage two. If we still believe that another person makes us angry, for example, we need to recognize exactly where our work is. Our ego is very powerful and insistent. Maria. As we move next into stage three, we're slowly moving out of a dualistic state of judging having thoughts, emotions, and opinions about ourselves and others, and about everything else in the world as well, toward a more non-dual and satisfying life. Husbands and wives fight less with one another. We begin to let our kids alone a bit more. Problems that we're facing ease as we more readily sense what is the appropriate thing to do. Something is really changing. How long does it all this take? Five years? 10 years, it depends on the person. The continuum of practice could be divided into different ways. We could simplify the analysis with an analogy. First, there is the soil, which is whatever we are at this moment in time. The soil may be clay or sand or rich with loam and compost. It may attract practically no ones or any ones, depending on its richness. The soil is neither good nor bad. It's what we are given to work with. We have practically no control over what our parents gave us in the way of parentity and conditioning. We can't be anything else than what we are right at this moment. We have things to learn, of course, but at any given point, we are who we are. To think we should be anything else is ridiculous. We simply practice with what we are. That is the soil. Rosemary. 
Okay. Uh, working with the soil, cultivation covers what I have called stage, what I have called stages two through four. We work with what the ground is, the seeds, the compost, the worms, weeding, pruning, using natural methods to produce a good crop. Needed. From the soil and its cultivation comes the harvest, which begins to be strongly evident in stage four and increases thereafter. The harvest is joy and peace. People complain to me, there is no joy in my practice yet, as if I should give it to them. Who gives us that joy? We give it to ourselves through our unrelenting practice. It's not something we can expect or demand. It shows up when it shows up. A life of joy doesn't necessarily mean that we're always happy, happy, happy. It means simply that life is rich and interesting. We may even hate certain aspects of living, but it's more and more satisfying to live on the whole. We no longer fight life. Respect to you, Joe. To summarize, first stage is becoming aware of what we are emotionally including our desire to control. The second stage is breaking down the emotions into their physical and mental components. When this process becomes a bit more advanced, in the third stage, we begin to have some moments of pure experiencing. The first stage is now quite remote. In the fourth stage, we move more fully from the effort of practice into its experiential living. In the fifth stage, the experiential life is now strongly established. One's life is 80 to 90% experiential. Pre-path living, being caught in our emotions and taking them out on others, thinking that others are to blame for our troubles is impossible in this stage. From stage two on, compassion and appreciation begin to grow. But peace. Sure. Student, your description of the stages of practice is helpful. It's like a map. It doesn't tell us how to get there, but it lets us know where we are going along the way. Brian? Uh, okay, Joko, how one gets there depends on the individual. We're all a little different. Ego patterns differ from person to person. Still, it's helpful to have a picture of the overall pattern. Claudine, what I have described is similar to the 10 ox herding pictures of classical Zen, but it is coached in more psychological terms because psychological approaches are more familiar to us in these days, in this day and age. Fundamentally, however, practice is practice. It takes everything we have got. We simply have to do it. C-E-G, C-E-G, C-E-G. And in explanation for the ox herding pictures, a traditional series of drawings depicting the progress of practice from delusion to enlightenment, enlightenment cast in the form of a man progressively taming a wild ox. 
Thank you so much. That was a, a lovely experience for me. Um, so I would like to invite any reactions. And uh, I will I just I'll start with a couple of things. Um, I was I was very happy reading through this again to find toward the very end that that Joko talked about compassion and appreciation because I thought those were things that were missing from the stages that she was describing. So in, in taking the, the kind of psychological focus that she took and that she emphasized a lot in her teaching, she did, it was a, it was a great service for her, her students that her, her students have continued to pass on. But uh, I was, I just thought that there might be something missing, like the cultivation of compassion and the cultivation of gratitude. So it is, it is something that I'm sure she elaborates on elsewhere in her talks and that you know, she certainly expressed it to people that uh, knew her. But um, I just wonder if there's anything else. Well, I have, and I have one more thing that I thought was missing from the list uh, that I learned from Peg early on in my days uh, at Appamata. And that was the turn that people make after they have some time in practice, particularly if they have the capacity, the, the, the chance to practice with other people. It really helps, it really helped me in realizing this to be able to um, sit with other people in the Zendo and to do, and to show up and see that Peg was sweeping the porch or somebody else was sweeping the porch or to see that, uh, you know, other tasks of maintaining the Zendo and keeping it beautiful and peaceful and nice, that those uh, tasks were uh, available to me to participate in and that I could stop the exclusive focus on myself and what was wrong with me and how I needed to change my approach to my emotions and manage my tension levels and all, you know, all those kinds of things, which are involved in this change from level one to level two, that that, that, that seemed to be um, an important opportunity for me. And, and when I described this to Peg at the time, she said that it was something that she watched for, that she saw it as an important phase in practice, as a, as a turn in practice, when people are willing to do things like take on roles in the Zendo, uh, to be monitored over and over again, uh, and uh, to do IT chores. The, the list has, of things that can be done has kind of shrunk in certain areas now because of the pandemic, but it's opened up in other areas and certainly opened up for connections with other people that we've not had uh, when we were exclusively a sitting group in Peg's home in Austin. So at any rate, that's what I that's what I kind of missed from what Joko was describing. But I, I just like to invite other reflections on the reading and other um, uh, thoughts on what you uh, are hearing in what she in what she had to say. And uh, please raise your hand and Nancy can 
call on you if you wish to speak, and I'll mute you. I see Joan. Yeah, Joan, please. I just really appreciated the clarity of it. And, uh, you know, it's like, um, was it Bob said that it was like a map, you know, or was it Brian? Um, it was it was like, okay, you know, now I see uh, what Joko has seen in her long practice and learning. And it was um, nice, nice to have that. Um, Joan Mueller, did you have your hand raised also? Can you unmute, unmute yourself? Okay, thank you. Yes, I have this book and I've been reviewing it. And this is so valuable for me because I have so much I can see that there is to do and it's really work to stay with it. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Is anybody um, disheartened or encouraged to hear that it may take five years or 15 years or 20 years? I actually find it kind of encouraging. Like I, you know, oh, I didn't get it right away, but the future is not written. Anybody have that reaction, John Harmon? Well, I was actually disheartened because I went, oh, am I there? Am I there? And I found this this reactive, evaluative part and and de, you know self demeaning part, and I had to just say, oh, this is what's coming up. So. Maybe, maybe I was past where I was, but boy, I saw it coming up. Kim? Yeah, you gave a talk a few months ago about when you fell down and that experience, and, and I sense that as being the experiential. Yesterday, I stabbed my finger with a knife. And there was, it was okay. It was just very minor, one drop of blood. But at that moment, it seemed very experiential. I keep trying to think, so how would it be washing dishes? I've talked about that before, maybe with you. You know, how would that be? Would, would I feel the warmth of the water? Would I feel the soap suds? Would, or would I simply be washing? I know I wouldn't be in La La Land, but I'm trying to find some medium and I wouldn't be conscious, oh, this is so fun to do, or this feels so good, or, you know, I wouldn't be there. And I'm trying to figure out exactly what the experiential thing is that, that you and I both, when we have an accident, we're kind of there for that moment. Is that how you sense it? But the moment being prolonged? I, I, I agree with you that, you know, and, and in my talk, I described the, the amazing slowing down as I was falling, having tripped over a rock in my garden, as I was falling and could see that if I was unable to adjust my body, that I would strike my head on the edge of a concrete block that was lying in front of me. And then without any conscious decision, being able to, or, you know, my body was able to make uh, adjustments, which saved me from that although I did fall in such a way that I broke my wrist. Um, but a good, a, good, <laughs> a good swap, I thought, at the time. Uh, I, I completely disagree with what you're saying, Kim. 
No, that's that's too strong. It's not that I disagree. That's all right. I, but I am. But I tend to want to. I I know that you know in our bodies. I hope I'm hoping this this is something that Maria will agree to give a talk about sometime because she's mentioned it before. But in our bodies, we are we have thousands of more sensory inputs that we can process um, discursively at any given time. And that, but that the, the notion of awareness seems to have some part of that, of, of those sensory inputs moving into recognition, moving into the discursive part of our mind, at least quickly enough to register, if not long enough to be described in words. And it, you know, I, what, what I hear you saying is that if you're taking a lot of time to describe an experience in words and then to evaluate your feelings about it and and uh labeling for fun or not that those that that is that's too much and that you're you're part of the problem with that is that the experience is roaring by you you you've missed a whole lot of stuff that's ongoing by trying to uh make sense of and, and really appreciate what's been going on this is our human condition, I think. This is the this is one of the you know beauties and tragedies of life that we have. That you know the present moment is moving through us and through the universe simultaneously, unfolding all the time. And we are constructed with these different parts of the brain that have to meet these uh, inputs at different speeds, in different ways, and so on. And we're stuck with it. So I, I, I don't think that it's necessary to valorize one moment, one mode over another, but just like if you are, if you're washing the dishes and you're not consumed with resentful thoughts, this is something that Joko is uh, emphasizing a lot. If you're not consumed with resentful thoughts, if you're not consumed with self-critical thoughts, then you are closer to being able to experience what is coming to you and coming into your consciousness moment by moment. And that's a kind of freedom that we normally don't get to have. To me, does that make sense? Yeah, that's good. Okay. I see Maria's got her hand raised. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking um, about um, serviettes and little sugar things that we have in cafes now i remember going through three stages with these i would go to a cafe and at the end of having my coffee i would pick up a few extra sugars and put them in my bag and a couple of serviettes and i'd think well you know they're just a bit extra and i've paid for them you know I so if i may if i may i'll, I'll just translate having actually been to england i will translate into american Serviette being like a paper napkin, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I'd, and I'd use cognitive dissonance and think, well, I've paid for this coffee. This, this, so I can take these extra bits of sugar and things to, to have in my handbag for my own convenience. And then there was the next stage where I'd pick up the sugars and put them in my bag and think, oh, is this okay? And I'd feel my body speaking to me, but I still did it and I still took the sugars. And then there was the next stage where it was just like, so, so I'm kind of, and then, and then there's another stage where I'd be like, 
right, I'm not going to take them. I'm going, I'm, I'm actively going to make myself not take these sugars and serviettes. I'm going to leave them on the table because it's not right to take them. They're not, you know, and, and then I'd argue with myself. And then there was a further stage, which was, I just didn't take them anymore. It doesn't occur to me to take them. It doesn't occur to me to put them in my handbag. And it was, it's been really interesting sort of gauging some of my journey with napkins <laughs> and, and stroke, stroke serviettes and, and sugars and the things that we feel that are free to us because they're on the table and they're there for the taking. And then somehow through the practice, this new consciousness comes about and this new compassion for everything. And, you know, they're not mine just to take just because they're there. You know, they, these have been put on the table for everybody. And yes, I've paid for my coffee. I can't justify taking them just because I've paid for the coffee and you know a new way of looking at the world that that's not mine anymore you know i don't need to take them i don't need those extra sugars in my bag i don't need to hoard those things you know just in case there's none next time or i run out at home or you know i go to somebody's house and they don't have that particular sugar it gives you a new way of looking and of of, of appreciating things so much wider and yeah so it, it, it that gate it's really interesting just to really watch yourself in little things like that you know where the consciousness changes and the level of, of your awareness of it and my body began to resound to the point where i could not take those sugars anymore because the practice was embedding and living through me and saying no maria no and now it's quiet because I just know you know it's really yeah so i just wanted to share that about <laughs> my journey with napkins and sugars thank you i uh, maria have, have you studied the precepts yes i have yes so and, and was the precept about not taking what is not freely given was that part of the awakening around this for you it was that preset when I was studying that, not taking what is freely given, because we think it's ours, don't we? Because it's just there in front of us. And, you know, and that was definitely, it was definitely that precept that really began to really move that within me and shift my process of, of not taking sugars and napkins that were extra, not taking extra that I, mm -hmm. di that I didn't need. And yeah, definitely. I mean, I would recommend anybody to read the, um, oh, what's that one with the flower on the front, the book? It's a wonderful book about all the precepts. I can't quite remember. Waking up. Waking that's up it. That's the one. That's the one. Yeah, wonderful. That's it. Is uh, Kim just showed it on his on his screen? Yes. <laughs> and that's the, that's the main text that we use for precepts classes here at Appamata. There's an ongoing class this year being led by uh, Todd Bankler. Uh, and they just had the fourth of 10 classes last Tuesday. And I, I've not participated this year, so I don't know where they are, but that's, that's part of it. Uh, I also want to say that there's, you know, that Joko doesn't talk about the precepts in this particular talk, but that the, the shifting to examining the ethics of life and the way that you approach other people and the way you approach uh, being honest with yourself and, and uh, notions of generosity and honesty, uh, that those, those are key to the practice that Joko uh, always advised, always taught. And um, 
it's a really part of the process and it, it, a, a really important part of the process. And that's one, that's also something that I was kind of missing in the reading of this, uh, the second time around is like, well, I wonder if she's going to mention the precepts and uh, honesty and generosity and uh, non-harming and those other things. Those and, and she's describing the process of how they arise kind of internally with an internal focus, but she leaves out, I think, that there's, that there's teaching and sharing that we can do that can help unlock a lot of those things that would that would be very hard for us to get on our own um, and that, that you know that's just true of so much in buddhist practice and in zen practice in particular yeah it's like the um koans isn't it how how certain things can really shift our practice like you mentioned the precepts joel and like the koan don't be predictable, how that shifted me from seeing someone saying something to me that was obviously really hurtful. So it was obviously their fault because it was obviously hurtful to not taking that. Well, I don't need to do anything, but the don't be predictable helped me to stop with my reaction, sit with it and allow it to open up and then really see what my part is in all of that that we all have a part in something, even if the other person's obviously being harmful, our reactions play a huge part in how everything unfolds. And that we still need to look at ourselves, even if the other person's obviously hurtful, because that can blind us sometimes, can't it? When somebody else is being outwardly obviously hurtful, we can think, well, I don't need to do anything because it's them. When actually we always have a part to look at and to a, a part to take in that, you know, where we can do something different and have a different outcome. Mm -hmm. Joko also offers a, a key for that step that you're describing. Uh, I, I, I'm thinking of it in terms that were explained by one of her senior students, uh, Ezra Veda, uh, who describes meeting with her and having a lot of, there was a lot going on in his life. He was in a lot of pain. And he was mad. He was just angry all the time. And that Joko very gently but insistently led him to examine or to, to ask himself this question. Okay, I'm mad. I'm going to sit with that anger for a minute. And then to, the question was, what am I believing that leads me to be angry? What do I believe, you know, what do I believe is the injury that's being done to me? What do I believe is the the vector by which it's traveling, you know, and so on. Just examine your beliefs and that that has a way of, again, further, it just, it makes a bigger container around these emotions, which can be very strong in the body and very hard to not accept as the truth, you know. And, and Joko offered this very succinct way of uh, being able to, unlock that you know something that would seem like it's locked up your whole life 